Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this part of the Bible that teaches us about your wisdom and we pray that you'll use it to make us truly wise. Uh, we pray that as we look at this part of your word now, in particular it will help us uh, to think about how to be wise in the face of suffering and setbacks in this life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been thinking uh, about wisdom over these last few weeks and we're looking at that part of the Old Testament. I think it's called the wisdom literature, these books of the Bible uh, that are, uh, go together. And in particular, we've looked at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I hope over the last couple of weeks, you've seen these sort of two different strands of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. So we started with Proverbs, I hope you remember, uh, and Proverbs focuses on the fact that God's world is good and ordered. So right back at the beginning of the Bible, God made the world and what did he say? He said, this is good. Uh, And uh, because of that, you can look at the world and you can just work stuff out on the basis of the fact that God has made it to be this way. And so in Proverbs, uh, you learn these, all these statements that are just generally true, uh, generally true of life and this world that we live in. And especially it tells us at the beginning that if you want to be wise, what is the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. So wisdom starts with getting the right attitude to God, understanding your place, that God is God, you are a person uh, and he is to be feared. Uh, Wisdom comes from understanding that this world is God's world and he's made it this way. Uh, That's the message of Proverbs. But then in Ecclesiastes last week, hopefully, you saw uh, a slightly different sort of side to wisdom. And Ecclesiastes shows us that yes, God made this world and it's good, but this world is messed up because of our sin, because of human sin. Uh, And so if you chase meaning in the things of this world apart from knowing God you won't find it. It will be meaningless. It'll be like chasing the wind, Ecclesiastes tells us. And so Ecclesiastes sort of shakes us and makes us remember that we have to long for something better than this world. Yeah, this world is good and this world is ordered, but if you want to find meaning, it needs to be beyond this world. You need to find it in God and knowing God and looking forward to the new creation. And so I think you need both of those strands of wisdom to really understand how to be wise in this world. There's some people who sort of get the Proverbs side and they sort of become very mechanical. If I do A, then B will happen. Uh, And there's some people who get the Ecclesiastes side, which is, oh, it's all meaningless. I may as well just sort of throw my hands up in the air and wait for Jesus to return. You actually need both of these. That's why they're both in the Bible. Both of these strands of wisdom to understand how the world works. So I use work as an example. Proverbs tells you, work hard. And if you work hard, you will be rewarded. And that's true. And we need to hear that. Don't be lazy. That's, you know, that's what Proverbs says about work. But then Ecclesiastes says, sometimes you'll work hard, but in this broken world, you won't see any reward for it. You'll work really hard and then you'll unfairly get the sack. You'll work really hard and then, do you know what? All your work will fade away and no one will remember what you did and you'll not get any thanks for it. And so Ecclesiastes says, don't search for meaning in something like your work. And you see how we need both of those words to be wise. That's why we need these different parts of the Old Testament. But today we're turning to a very different book, this book of Lamentations. Who before this week had read Lamentations before at some point? Just put up your hand if you'd read Lamentations before, a few people. Uh, Lamentations is not one of those books that people put on their reading plan to read once a year. Uh, I think it's one of the hardest books in the Bible to read. 
Not because it's got lots of big words that end in shun or anything like that. It's not one of those books. It's not hard because it's a difficult concept. It's hard because it's just so confronting. Uh, And the big theme of this book is wisdom in suffering. Uh, That's what Lamentations is all about. So this week, as I've been preparing this sermon, all week I've been thinking, why on earth did I think this was a good idea? I've just been thinking, this is draining. It's so hard, this book. Uh, And in a sense, what Lamentations is getting us to see is, yes, it's easy to be wise in the good times, easy to sort of think I'm wise when it looks like everything's going my way. But Lamentations is saying to you, what about when everything is hopeless and it seems like God is against us? So let's turn to Lamentations. You'll need to have it open in front of you because I'll be flicking throughout the book. So put up your hand if you didn't get a Bible before and someone at the back will get one to you. Uh, So open up now to chapter 1, just one down the middle here. As I say, you'll need to be following along. But what do we know about the book of Lamentations as we start? Well, it was written probably by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, That's who who probably wrote Lamentations. And it was written at about the most horrible moment in the whole Old Testament. Uh, It was written at that point when God had had enough of the sin of his people and had come through and judged them he'd sent prophet after prophet warning them prophet after prophet saying stop worshiping idols stop ignoring the needs of the poor stop compromising rather than trusting in me and he'd warned them over and over again for hundreds of years and eventually God said enough is enough and he raised up this king from Babylon King Nebuchadnezzar and he came through and he destroyed Jerusalem so the city of God was wiped out this this city that they sang psalms about you can read psalms like psalm 46 they talk about how zion is a stronghold jerusalem is god's city was just wiped out and more than that nebuchadnezzar came into the temple and he took away everything precious to them just took it all away you know the movie raiders of the lost ark well it was nebuchadnezzar that took the ark after this the ark was no more who knows if Harrison Ford really found it or not but you know you know but but more than that the whole temple he just knocked it knocked it down not one stone left on top of the top of another this incredible sort of building that people had come from all over the world to come and see the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem was totally destroyed and worse than that horrible things happened to God's people at this time the lucky ones were taken off into exile taken off to Babylon as captives the unlucky ones were left behind to starve and then as they were starving there in the ruins of Jerusalem in came all the other countries who'd who'd always sort of opposed them over the years to mock them and and have shots at them and abuse them and they just it was horrible Uh, and in Lamentations if you read the whole book there are just these horrible descriptions of what the people went through and those events these events raised a massive question for the people of God what was the question do you think it was is this the end of God's love for his people is this the end is this the end of God's promises to his people Uh, you see to understand the whole Old Testament to understand the whole Bible you need to understand that it's all about God fulfilling the promises he had made to his people just giving you a warning here this is one of those ones where I'm asking you to answer my questions do you remember right back at the start what did God promise to Abraham what did God promise to Abraham a land blessing 
and that they would be a great nation there'd be as many descendants as sand on the seashore and then in addition to being a blessing that through them they would then be a blessing to all the nations of the earth they were the promises so God said I'll give you a land to live in I will give you I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you as my people then with Moses he made more promises to his people he took them out of slavery in Egypt and he said I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell with you and how did they symbolize that well they had the tabernacle this sort of holy tent where God symbolically dwelt when they got to Jerusalem they replaced the tabernacle with the temple and so it was the sign of the promise here is God dwelling in the midst of his people and then with King David what was the promise there from your descendants I will raise up a messiah the Christ the king and savior but now at this point as they sat there what were they to make of those promises there was no land it wasn't their land anymore there was no city there was no temple and there was a king but he was off in chains and he wasn't really a very good king anyway and so as they sat in the ruins that was the great theological question has God deserted us once and for all is that the end and so they wrote this book and what this book is is five poems written as they sat in the ruins taken out now and just flick flick through it uh, it's five poems and the majority of the poems chapters one chapter two and chapter four are really just laments that's a poem just saying everything is hopeless that's what they are and if you look at them there you'll see how uh, they were written in a particular style uh, you notice how there's a funny little squiggle and it says aleph does it say that in your bible and then before verse two a funny little squiggle and then bait and a funny little squiggle and give that's the hebrew alphabet and so each of the poems was written you might have done this in english at school we had to write a poem where the first line starts with a and the second line starts with b well the through to z well this was a poem written for every letter of the hebrew alphabet basically saying everything is hopeless there is no hope but then scattered through it all are just these little sort of bursts of sunshine these little just messages of hope uh, and especially in the middle poem chapter three which we'll get to a little later on but now back to chapter one chapter one's the first poem and it's basically about the fall of jerusalem and it describes jerusalem as like a woman a widow whose husband has abandoned her and left her with nothing uh, and of course that's the picture she has been jerusalem has been abandoned by her husband god has abandoned her and so when it talks about her and she it's talking about the city of jerusalem and later in the chapter it starts talking about it from the first person it talks about me and it's jerusalem talking it's just sort of poetry so let's look at verse one it says how she sits alone the city once crowded with people she who is great among the nations has become like a widow the princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor so you see the picture this city that was once great amongst the nations people used to come from all over the world queen of sheba came during the time of solomon just to see how wonderful jerusalem was well now has become like a widow she's been put to forced labor and then the constant repeated line is there in verse two look there there is no one to offer her comfort and that line just gets repeated over and over again verse 9 verse 16 verse 17 and on and on there was no one to comfort her jerusalem it seems has been abandoned by god 
That's the picture you're meant to have at this point. But more than that, they realise that it's actually God who did this to her. See, the other nations would have been saying to them, well, your God must be hopeless, or maybe your God doesn't exist. Maybe you should be worshipping Baal instead of Yahweh or one of these other gods, because how, if your God was powerful, he wouldn't have let this happen to you. But what they recognise is, no, 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 God is the one who's done this to us. So look down to verse 13. It says, he, that is God, sent fire from heaven into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, sick all day long. See, as other people were saying to them, where's your Yahweh now? As if this event proves that God isn't real or God isn't powerful. They said, no, no, even in our grief here, we understand this is not that God has failed. What this is, is actually God's righteous judgment on our sin now we're not going to look at it in detail but that's the big theme of the poem in chapter 2 if you flick over to chapter 2 the theme of that is God is the destroyer of Jerusalem Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's really powerful he thinks he's the one who's wiped Jerusalem out but actually God was just using him as his tool to do his work and in fact the point is God had warned them about this for centuries as far back as the book of Deuteronomy when they were staying, before they'd even come into the promised land, Moses preached a sermon to them in Deuteronomy and he said to them, if you turn away from me and if you worship idols instead of me, this is what I will do. I'll judge you. And so if you flick to Lamentations chapter 2, verse 17, look at that one with me. It says, the Lord has done what he planned. He has accomplished his decree, which he ordained in days of old. Now, See what he's saying? He's saying, I've just done what I said I was going to do. God's just done what he always promised he would do. Now, at various points in the book, it just sort of, as you read it, it just comes across like a cry of despair. You know, like you, you, you sort of hear people say, where are you, God, because I'm suffering. And it comes across like they're blaming God and saying, God, how dare you do this to me? But then as you read, you see that actually slowly they're admitting, yes, it's God who's done it to us but we deserved it and that's the realization they come through through to through the poems they admit it's not God who's to blame God is faithful this has happened because of our sin this has happened because of our unfaithfulness so look at chapter 1 verse 18 it says the Lord is just for I have rebelled against his command so saying yes God's judgment is awful but it's never unfair God's not like some bully who's quick to anger and just sort of capricious in his judgment. That's not the God of the Bible. No, instead God is slow to anger, but eventually he must judge their sin. And we won't go there now, but uh, if you want to read chapter 4 later on, it's talking particularly about the guilt of Israel's leadership, about how the kings and the priests and the prophets abused their power and failed to point the people in the right direction. And so if you just had chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then chapter 4 of Lamentations, that's all we would learn. It would truly be the most negative book in the whole Bible. It would just be a horrible reminder. Sin is serious. God's wrath and judgment is awful. That's all it would be. And that's an important lesson that we need to hear. But right in the middle of the book, in the middle of chapter 3, amidst all the despair there is this ray of sunshine that comes down, a note of hope 
that rings out where we're told that God's judgment is not the end of the story. So come to chapter 3 and we'll start at verse 19 which is a little earlier than where we started our Bible reading before. So it's Jerusalem talking again and it says, Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. So it's like that's, this is at its lowest point. That's where they are, depressed in their affliction. But then there's something happens. Look at verse 21. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. And what does he call to mind? Look at verse 22. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Aren't they some of the most wonderful verses in the Bible? You would have seen them on a poster somewhere. Christians for 2,000 years have put them up on a, on a plaque on their wall as a great reminder of God's faithfulness. And Christians have learnt them off by heart. But the thing is, they don't, you don't actually understand them until you understand just how bad things were when they first said those words. Because he's saying, hang on a second. Here I am complaining about what God has done in his just judgment. But actually... I'm alive. Actually, God should have, by rights, totally wiped us out and started again. That's what we deserved. He could have given up on us, but here we are, a remnant who God has kept alive. And we know that God is faithful because God has always kept his promises. For all the time God has worked, he has kept his promises. And so having dealt with my bitterness towards God and my sort of anger towards God and having recognized that actually the problem is not with God, the problem was with my sin, now, they say, now we will turn back to God in repentance and we will wait for him to restore us. So look at verse 25. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for deliverance from the Lord. And then verse 31. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to his abundant faithful love. You see, what you see here is this movement in the book of Lamentations. And I hope you do go away and read the whole book later on. It starts with despair despair at the judgment of God but then that moves to self-awareness that actually we've sinned and it was the sin of the people it was the failure to listen to God that was to blame and then finally that leads to them to turn back to trusting God to remembering what they know about God and trusting that he will keep his promises so what starts so depressing actually moves to a wonderful reminder of the faithfulness of God but now, what I want us to do is think about how this Old Testament wisdom speaks to us. I mean, this was a very specific moment in the horrible history of God's people. Uh, and so you could just sort of take it as a history lesson. Oh, well, they were unfaithful, God judged them, and there's a history lesson. But how does it actually speak to us now? And I want to just throw out three ways to finish off, and it's there on your outline. The first thing is... This reminds us how seriously God treats sin. See, as you read Lamentations, 
and read those awful descriptions of what happened to Israel, as we read about how they were forsaken by God for their idolatry and for their rebellion, it should make us realise the seriousness of sin. And it should make us realise just how awful the judgment of God is. And that's not just an Old Testament theme, that's there in the New Testament as well. Look on your outline, take it out now, and you'll see I've printed out Hebrews chapter 10, verses 30 and 31. Listen to these words. It says, For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, what the book of Lamentations reminds us is, is that God is not some old man in a white dress up in heaven who who you can just ignore. God's wrath is just and awful. And so to continue in unrepentant sin is the most dangerous thing a person can do. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But then... More positively, lamentation should make us incredibly thankful for what Jesus has done for us. You see, as we read lamentations about the awful judgment of God at that time, it's meant to make us say, that is what we would face, deservedly. It's like a precursor to hell. That's what lamentations is. It's saying we would be forsaken by God like they were if Jesus had not taken our place. See, that's what Lamentations is meant to say to us, a New Testament believer. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was taking the wrath of God upon himself, the wrath that we deserved. And when he cried out, what did Jesus cry out on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was saying, I am being forsaken so that you don't have to be forsaken like those people back then. So the second response to lamentation should be to grow in us an even greater wonder at how amazing Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. We have been given the opportunity to repent and trust in Jesus without facing the judgment ourselves. The people in lamentations experience the judgment and then turn back to God. Jesus has experienced the judgment for us and said, you don't have to face it if you will just turn to me. And believe in me. But then finally, what can Lamentations teach us about when we face suffering? I want to say, first of all, in one sense, this is not actually Lamentations' point. Uh, The suffering of Lamentations was the specific judgment of God on the sin of Israel and Judah. And the Bible doesn't encourage us to look at every time we suffer and say, that must be a sign of God's judgment on me, on my personal sin. Uh, Here that was the case, but more often the suffering we face comes from the fact that we live in a fallen, broken world because of human sin in general. Uh, Sickness or pain or loss or grief or even persecution for our faith, they all come from the fact that this world is broken because of human sin. There are some Christians who every time something bad happens to them, they go, I must have done something wrong. God must be judging me at this time. The the New Testament doesn't encourage us to think in that way. People would sometimes ask Jesus uh, when when a tragedy happened, did that happen because they were worse? Because they were particularly bad sinners? And Jesus would say, no, 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 no. They're no better or worse than you. 
Just let it be a reminder to you to make sure you've put your faith in God before whatever happens, happens. But even if that's not the main point uh, in this book, that wonderful passage in Lamentations 3 is still a wonderful word to us. And if you if you sort of haven't followed everything so far in Lamentations, I want you to get this. This is the final point to take away. Because when we face suffering, what are we tempted to do? What are we tempted to say to God? When we face suffering, aren't we tempted to be angry at God? When we face suffering, we say, well, why did God let this happen to me? Where is God when this is happening to me? And we can be tempted to doubt either that God is really in control. We can say, well, if God was really in control, he wouldn't let this happen. Or we can be tempted to doubt God's goodness to us, God's love for us. Isn't that right? We sort of say, well, if God really loves me and he's really in control, well, why does he let this happen? But like they did in Lamentations 3, when we face suffering, we need to call to our mind the wonderful promises of God. You see, we need to not let our current experience drive what we think about God. Too many Christians do this. They go up and down like a yo-yo. Oh, good things are happening to me. God must love me. Bad things are happening to me. God mustn't love me. No, God loves you, whatever's happening. And you see, when we can't let our experience drive what we think God thinks of us. Instead, we need to let what we know to be true from God's word, what we know to be true about God and his love, drive our understanding of our experience and God has told us in the New Testament that we will suffer in this life God has told us we can trust we know for certain it's one of the promises of scripture living in this fallen world bad things will happen but then he says you can trust that whatever happens God is still working for your eternal good just look at the wonderful promise, the last couple of verses on your outline there, Romans eight twenty eight. this wonderful promise. It says, we know, if we know Jesus, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that just one of the most wonderful promises of scripture? If you've got Lamentations 3 on a poster, put Romans 8 on a higher poster. It's even better. It's saying whatever happens to you in this life, bad or good, you can be certain, 100% certain, that God is working for your good. Now please note what this isn't promising. It's not promising that only good things will happen to you. It's not promising that you won't suffer or struggle in this life. But what it is promising is that whatever your current circumstances, good or bad, whatever happens, you can be certain that the God who sent his son to die for you is working for your eternal good. And we can be sure of that because look at Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing, will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we know for certain the certainty of God's love because he's shown it to us already. And we know that whatever happens, bad or good, nothing can take away our salvation. 
And nothing can take away the place he has for us in his kingdom. And that knowledge means that when we face suffering, we say, I will call to mind that I know that God is good. And when we struggle, we can say, I will call to mind that I know God is working for my good. But you can only do that if you know Jesus. It's only knowing Jesus and what he's done for us that gives us that perspective. Which is why it's so important to cultivate our faith in Jesus in the good times. To cultivate our understanding of the goodness of God and his promises to us before we suffer. So that we can have that right perspective when it does come. If you haven't cultivated in the good times, when the suffering comes, you won't have anything to call to mind. To remember the goodness of God and his love for us. See, the people who in the end remained faithful and wrote that wonderful verse in Lamentations 3, even as they suffered awfully, they could only do that because they had read God's word and they knew that God is faithful and he will continue to be faithful despite what's happening to me right now. Look at Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 again. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And how much more can we say that as people who know Jesus? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know your faithful and certain love because we know Jesus who died for us. And we pray that as we face suffering and struggles in this life, It will not drive us to question you and doubt you, but instead we pray that we will call to mind the wonderful fact that you love us and that your love for us cannot be taken away and that you are always working for our eternal good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.